So we're here for the historical comics panel, and we're going to discuss uh, historical comics. Um, my name's Adam. I'm from the Dollar Bin podcast. We're going to be recording this and posting it online. So if you want to listen again or share with your friends, anybody who may have missed it, uh, this will be on our website, thedollarbin.net. And um, I guess let's go ahead and introduce ourselves. I'm going to start with Matt because Chris will talk forever, so we'll work our way this way. <laughs> I'm Matt. <laughs> and uh, you are working on, uh, you do the art on Manifest good. Destiny? Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm Matt Roberts. I do, <laughs> I do art on uh, Manifest Destiny for Skybound uh, under Image Comics. And Ed? Um, you, can, you can go, I, Ed. <laughs> I'm uh, Ed Piscor. Right now I'm working on a comic series called Hip Hop Family Tree. It's kind of a linear history of hip hop and rap music. And before that I did a comic called WYSIWYG that uh, sort of about the life and times of a fictional uh, computer hacker, but it was set in a landscape of kind of like the history of high technology. And before that, I did work with Harvey Picor in American Splendor. I'm uh, Chris Schweitzer. I do the Krogan Adventures, uh, which is a historical adventures graphic novel. Um, and not history-related, I also do a kid's uh, horror series called The Creeps. And so, let's see, where do we begin? When, you, it, with your projects, I guess the first question is, what do you guys research? Like, what is it that you want to be specifically accurate about? For, for me, it's the, the feel of the period. I feel like um, you, can, you can fudge details to some degree, if, if you're doing nonfiction, or if you're doing fiction. If you're doing nonfiction, um, to, to some degree, you're committed to, uh, you're committed to presenting information factually. Um, I think from, from a moral standpoint, uh, whereas if you're doing even a, a fictionalized version of a historical event, you can tweak things for, for the narrative, uh, just to make it stronger. You can tweak design elements, you know, simplify this aspect of a, of a uniform or a dress or something like that. Uh, but one thing that I think is kind of universally necessary is that you capture the, the the feel of the the period the the social interactions um uh, the the social strata like that that kind of thing because I think that that's the stuff that people negatively respond to if you if you mess that up whereas people generally turn a blind eye to small details like the 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 feel is important um and so so for me the research a lot of times. Uh, goes to reading uh, first-hand accounts, uh, documentation, letters, anything like that, to get a sense as to how people spoke, what their their views on certain things were, things like that. Because then you can kind of apply that to to your characters, and you can still put, you know, a contemporary spin on it. And you can either use it to draw out uh, differences between the time, or similarities between the time, or a particular uh, current social issue or personal issue or whatever it might be. Um, but I think, think that that's still the, the main thing I'm looking for when I'm researching. I mean, you actually brought up kind of a thing that triggered a point with me. Is So your story that you're mainly working on now is a fictional story that is based around real events. Yeah, and, or real period. Not, not necessarily yeah, real, real events, like I'll invent <laughs> the events, uh, yeah. because it gives me greater narrative freedom. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm too lazy to try and <laughs> pick a real thing and, and structure around that. Um, but it... Uh, but yeah, I, I, I root them very specifically in a year and a place, and I feel like both of those things uh, together contribute a lot to what the 
what the story is going to be. And, and it also gives me a starting point from which to, to study. So sometimes if it's a, if it's a genre, if it's, you know, a Western or a world War one flying ace thing or something like that, um, I'll look at, uh, you know, there are certain genre conventions that are expected and I'll do my best to deliver those while also trying to not be boring in the way that I deliver them. Um, but, but yeah, usually it's a, it's a time and a place like very, very rigid. Like it's, it's, you know, 1852 in Denmark or something. And then, so everything has to fit within that framework. And I try to not deviate from that if possible. And then Ed, yours is, I mean, you got to try to be nailing hundred percent accuracy on this because you've got real living people who you're telling their story. Yeah. Right. Uh, a big part of my project for me is the authenticity of it. And I go to great lengths sort of in a journalistic fashion to, to, um, you know, research every kind of moment that I'm speaking about in, in citing multiple sources uh, to get it as accurate as possible. But also, I just like to have some artillery uh, in my back pocket in case some clown comes out and tries to, like, discredit me. So I just, like, kind of drop drop an interview with the subject matter, like, on their heads and just say, yeah, go home, go home or something like that. But uh, just comics is, is my first love in, in general, and uh, I kind of like the, the promise of... Japanese uh, comics and how like there there are comics representative of every facet of their culture, uh, and and so like why not have a hip hop comic right? And I like kind of like the big chunk of my audience is a hip hop audience, not a comic audience. So I'm trying to make something super comprehensive, super detailed, uh, and honestly, I'm trying to make the most comprehensive hip hop thing. So that if you are interested in the subject matter, you have to read a comic book. To get all that information in one, in one place, you see what I'm saying. So um, it's incredibly important for me to um, get things as accurate as possible. The first book was largely from uh, found resources. Every book I could read on the subject, every documentary that exists, as many magazine articles and online interviews as I could find to to put together the narrative. And and that book came out, hit that New York Times bestseller list. But I'm not one to brag. And uh, when the second book came out, um, you know, at this point I now have access to like almost any rapper that I need to speak to, which is cool, but it actually doesn't do much for the narrative because the way hip hop works, you're supposed to kind of like puff yourself out and kind of like crap on your enemies. So a lot of the conversations I have, I really can't even use uh, for my comic because I could kind of tell that it's BS. Um, But yeah, that's sort of the process. And then, Matt, you're doing art on a book that is just lunacy, really. Like, how much? Well, of that I mean, I would agree on? with you until I, I, I don't have, I don't do shit compared to these dudes, because um, I don't write it. So, yeah. I mean, all, all of my stuff is visual accuracy, and I do, I do front load research whenever something new or when I'm starting an arc, or it's, it's all front load. I do a ton of research on the first issue or two, and then it just kind of becomes my own. I have hopefully enough confidence that I'm getting it right for the time period. Um, fashions, rifles, whatever. You know, if I'm doing some kind of crazy monster, I'll make sure I've got some of the look and anatomy right, and then I just kind of do my own thing. So you're also you put a lot of emphasis on on your environments as well. Like right, yeah. Um, are you are you looking at specific locales when you're doing that? Or are you? I was just talking about this the other day. I, I did a lot of front loader research that. on the Missouri River, <laughs> yeah. and uh, and so, I mean, a lot of it's based around that Missouri River, the trees and stuff that go there. But, you know, I'll make up my own flowers for the foreground. I'll, do, I'll Bob Ross it, and it, it, 
it's not accurate. <laughs> but they're moving up the river, so I got to update my research because yeah, yeah. It, it's going to change. It feels like just the spirit needs to really be captured most. And when it comes to the visual aspect, I, I remember reading uh, Crumb's book of Genesis, and there's a lot of back matter uh, at the end of the, of the book, and he just describes that like a lot of the costume, a lot of the mm-hmm. uh, set pieces. He got from like Cecil B. DeMille's like biblical flicks from you know the forties or fifties or something like that because the costumes were more interesting and very and very right. Elaborate. I, I, I kind of went the wrong because I, I what you have in your head is like coonskin caps and that kind of stuff yeah. and that actually wasn't the case. It wasn't like a tricorner cap. So yeah, I, I kind of limited myself by making up fashions based on what was true. So yeah. it was yeah, it's kind of weird. Not I just I really wanted a coonskin cap, but yeah. Well, yeah, the, thing, the thing you mentioned with the with the Crumb book, like I think, uh, and and you know, Crumb sort of I think like purposefully tries to to delegitimize delegitimize his process whenever he can. I think like mm. in terms of like just knocking people off the high horse of criticism when they're they're addressing it. But like the Demille stuff, um, you know, we look at that and we're like, oh, okay, it's made in the forties, and you know, there's Joshua's swashbuckling like off of a thing, but really like movies especially I think get a lot of flack because they do get a lot of like historical details wrong but in terms of the the dressing of the films a lot of times they're spot on you know they hire a ton of experts and DeMille actually I think did more for Egyptology research in the like the five years prior to making that film for all the people he brought in to say what would Pops look like what would uh this looked like that they just funded tons of this research that we still use today in an academic setting um, uh, to, to try and get those costumes and everything as close to accurate. So yeah. even though we think of them as being kind of this, you know, the Hollywood right. studio thing, there's, there's a well, lot yeah, of validity the, to the designs. Like the Native American stuff I've done in there. Uh, I've worked against the Hollywood stereotype on purpose. Like, you know, I didn't want a cigarette box Indian yeah. headpiece. But that's authentic in a way. Yeah, and so, but, but I, mean, I made yeah. up my own thing. But it took a lot more work than I needed because I didn't. You know, I don't know. Yeah, I kind of shy away from that. But it is a lot of it is kind of accurate. And so. that and that's a tricky thing is because you do want to, but also yeah, you want to, you you don't want to play into the the cartoonized stereotype right. of thing and just I mean like for for Native Americans for like pirates are a good example like a lot of pirates you know would wear striped shirts and things like that. And they look like, you know, Peter Pan villains. Right. And you're like, you know, you, you want to kind of pull away from that if you're wanting to do a real thing. But then at the same time, you're like, oh, that's kind of how they, right. how they looked. I, I, uh, I just came back from Norway uh, earlier this week, and I was taking a look at some Nor- local Norwegian comics while I was at this festival. And uh, this one guy, he showed me this comic, and I thought it was pretty cool. It looked sort of like a barbarian story or something. And he's like, yeah, this is like... This is like one of our oldest uh, Viking legends, and I'm like Vikings, like like this is Vikings because I'm expecting to find like you know the flavor flavor hats and and, and, and and all that kind of stuff. And he's like, oh yeah, that was like Wagner's Valkyrie, blah blah blah. Like yeah, we we, we didn't have uh, you know like horn horn helmets and stuff like that. And it was incredibly shocking to my uh, to my ignorant uh, American <laughs> point of view. Matt, when you draw your monsters and things. Are you are you just kind of coming up with your own things? Are you researching like? Can, maybe, can you like, explain for anybody who hasn't read Manifest Destiny oh, what Manifest Destiny I, is? I, I, I mean, should have done you're, that. You're talking about the right. historical things, but then you're also right. saying monsters. So. Historical yeah, 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 monsters. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. It's uh, Manifest Destiny is basically the Lewis and Clark expedition, uh, but instead of you know genocide of Native Americans, they're meeting monsters. Uh, and you know the Chris, the writer Chris Thingus likes to say, "There's a reason the French sold it to us for cheap." So. 
I mean, that's, so it's, it's historical fiction is, is what it is. But uh, for the monsters, Chris comes up with a lot of base ideas. He's got a really good imagination. And I kind of got off that. Like for the frog, there's, we have a frog monster in, in the second arc. And he said, can you make it like as big as a bull? And I'm like, well, what if he had like an octopus in his mouth was my input to that. <laughs> and then we compromise and he just has a bunch of tongues. But so, yeah, it's, Chris has a lot of really good base ideas. He, and, you know, he's starting to draw more off uh, Native American and American monster legends for upcoming yeah. arcs and stuff like that. So, yeah, his imagination, what's already out there, and then I get to go nuts with it as well. So. So a lot of that is coming from like the, yeah. the era's lore, like mythology, and right. stuff like that. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, um, Lois and Clark. Yeah, it's basically the exploration out west, but with like crazy supernatural stuff going on. And right, yeah, I don't have to worry about being accurate. I can just. And I don't really know the story very well about Lois and Clark. Lois, I keep saying that. It's yeah, so I know weird. a lot of people. I do too. Culture has ruined my brain. Right. Lewis and Clark. <laughs> I don't know a lot about that exploration. Did you study a lot of any of the actual I mean, I watched some documentaries, and I, and I read up on it. Um, it. I mean, it's a super interesting story. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's one of the weird things. It's, it's, you know, American bravery and, you know, all this macho Davy Crockett stuff, and then you realize what they paved the way for, which is kind of – it's super sad. So it, it, I think Chris, the writer, is doing a good job of, of balancing the – Indiana Jones aspect of it, and then the actual monstrosities that occurred, you know, and the, the attitudes of the time. So I, I think he's doing a good job with that. I'm counting on him to do a good job with that. So, and then, you know, I'll put little snarky artistic nods in there, you know, uh, to hammer home some kind of political point or something if I feel like it. But yeah. Can I ask uh, Ed a question? Yes. All right. Um, I, I was curious in terms of uh, the, the way that you uh, approach. The differences between Family Tree and Fizzywood, like how are you, like if with with the computer stuff, were you dealing with, um, were, were you still concerned with, uh, I guess, being fair to existing players, you know, even if they're analogs, or were you, were you more free with the, I, I, I'm sure there was more freedom with the narrative, but, uh, but what are, what are some of the differences between doing sort of historically place fiction in a very specific time frame and in a specific industry um, and then doing the same but with nonfiction. Right. The, um, the WYSIWYG story, the, the main protagonist or antagonist, depending on which side of the fence you're on, uh, really was just a cipher uh, of you know, many different people. And I just took the, the most interesting parts of their lives um, and incorporated them into this one character. There have been biopics of some of these men uh, Kevin Mitnick in particular, and the movie that was made about his life, there were fictional aspects that um, the flick was made when he was still in prison. So it kind of like affected his case in a negative way. It was it was a big issue in the 90s. Um, but it could have all been mitigated if the filmmakers would have just made a cipher characters. Like you have room to play, like you were talking about. Um, so the difference is that I just basically used that character to go through the history of high technology. Now, I wouldn't speak about companies or, or any of that stuff in any big specifics. It was just like the jumps uh, in in creative technology that have that that have you know come in, into being from the seventies to now. So it's like you know in the se- early seventies, the most complicated computer that we had access to was the telephone system, and that those were were the initial hackers, you know, used as a playing ground or whatever. 
you know, all the way through the personal computer. Then when the personal computer like got attached to the telephone uh, lines, and I was just kind of like you know sh- showing how all of those parts fit together. So in a lot of ways, it's similar to the family tree because rather than a family tree of of humans, mm-hmm. uh, it was a family tree of like telephones to computers to telephones and computers to networks to you know thirty year prison sentences. Do you do you see the world like that? Like, and I, her, is that how you how you like frame your own personal life? Like, do you think of it in terms of a series of events that leads to other things? Or I kind of do. I always I always draw things back, and I think that honestly, my uh, my comics fandom factors into this in a big way because I'm like I'm like a child of Wizard magazine, right? So I'm like, you know, I'm scouring those pages in like 1993 looking for the first appearance of Deadpool. You know, and then uh, I dig out that comic, and then I become a Rob Liefeld fan. Now I'm looking for like the first appearance of like Rob Liefeld's artwork, and so on and so forth. So I'm like always in this like constant, uh, constant mode of just like digging deeper and deeper to try to get to the root of things. And then I read an interview with Rob Liefeld, and I I see that his influences were like Frank Miller, and I've never heard of Frank Miller at that point. So I got to see what this Frank Miller guy is about. Then I find out that Frank Miller's influences are Gil Kane. So I'm reading about that and checking out that guy's comics going back further and further and further and, and then you know you eventually end up at a you know Rudolph Topher or whatever it's like you basically were doing like when you go to Wikipedia and you get caught in a Wikipedia black hole but Ex- except, it, except it's true and now and now yeah oh I, I envy I, I don't know if I envy, yeah I envy the kids today with the Wikipedia black hole like where they're where they're learning about stuff because it was you know you had a wait you had a wait time of trying to track down yeah stuff but that, but that stuff is like that stuff is like you know personal citations that you or I could kind of kind of inflect upon so you can't really ch- trust wikipedia it certainly can't be cited in an ac- academic text mm-hmm. like your professor will will t- will, will ri- rip your rip your uh notebooks up rip your thesis up but in terms of in terms of that in terms of the uh i guess the the, the personal personal inflection stuff how how much does that factor into to family tree like if you're because presumably you're having to make judgment calls with the right. way you present the narrative sure. as to who's right in a particular situation. Even if you're presenting both sides, you're probably going to be weighing in on, on one. Yeah, there, there are uh, certain mechanical devices in comics that kind of uh, allow me to skate around from being the, 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 the judge and jury of, of the moment. So uh, there, there really aren't specific arguments that I've gotten into yet, but there have been moments that have a lot of there's a lot of like as a for instance uh there's a rapper named KRS-One who a big part of his his quote-unquote origin story is how he was homeless as as a teenager and he was kind of traversing the, the streets of New York on his own and starving and all this and that any story that takes place that he talks about from that era he conveniently has nobody else who can cite the stuff that happened. So that really, like, I, I, I like him as a rapper a whole lot, but that really uh, kind of, you know, make, makes, me, makes me sort of stand on edge, a little bit defensive about the narrative. So I will uh, incorporate some language, like, you know, as the legend goes, or, or something like this to, ch- to just kind of let the reader know to a certain extent that this is not necessarily gospel. Like, this is all kind of the, the, the word of one person because mm-hmm. we don't have a lot of, documentation on this journey that this guy went on. So, uh, so I'll use techniques like that. Um, that. That's really been the biggest 
thing that's come up so far. And you've had a few where you'll hear a story, so you'll have that character actually tell the story from their point of view. Because exactly. that's the that, only that as well. Yeah. That as well. If, if, if there's a certain kind of battle or something, I'll put the words in that character's mouth and kind of adjust the story in such a way that this is them speaking rather than like the other real narrator who, who, who uh, you know, uh, in, is incorporated in the, in the yellow captions above each panel or whatever. Have you found there to be any uh, protagonists and antagonists in Hip Hop Family Tree? Sure, and it's usually, uh, <laughs> it's usually the business people who are the antagonists, and that's a parallel of the comic industry as well. <laughs> I'm always on the side of the creative. And, and so if anything was to skew in one direction or the other, if I think about it, um, like I'm almost always just, just as a creative person, I'm in favor of the artist. So, so I will maybe, maybe put a little extra wrinkle in a record label owner's face or something like that to just make them a little <laughs> bit crustier. <laughs> and then when we were talking earlier about um, WYSIWYG, now I remember you had mentioned something about you, there's a whole archive of like a hacker radio show. Yeah. And you, I mean, did you listen to all that before when you were writing WYSIWYG or is that after? I, I listened to all that stuff. All that stuff was an inspiration to put the story together because before, before podcasts and stuff like this, when I was working for Harvey Picar had very tight deadlines, and I was working on books with him for you know over a year on on some of that stuff, um, and I just needed stuff to listen to. So yeah, I listened to like a twenty five year archive of this radio show called Off the Hook, uh, one hour per week, you know, however many thousand hours that is, um, and I listened to it over a period of like fourteen months, and the 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 radio show was was broadcast um, by. A publisher of a magazine called 2600, the Hacker Quarterly. So, so the the um, broadcaster had privileged access to like all the most notorious hackers in America, and he would interview these people. And that's where I kind of make the made the psychological correlation between uh, all of those individuals. And in a weird way, I made a psychological correlation with them to cartoonists because they have the same kind of curious, um, obsessive. Uh, compulsive energy. It's just that they use their energy in a different way. So I, it made me really identify with with that universe because, like any cartoonist, could have been them if uh, if the circumstances were different during their formative years or something. And uh, Chris, you have a fabulous beard. You recently spent a lot of time on a boat. Was that specifically for research, or was that for fun? Um, a little bit of both. Um, I I went and did. Uh, 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 stretch as a deckhand on the tall ship Lady Washington because um, I do I do a lot of nautical stuff in my books and you know I've, I've studied uh, I, I felt like I'd learned as much as I could learn from from books um, uh, and so going and sort of doing it on hand and and you know learning all the line, you know there's like 150 160 lines um, that each have a name and a purpose and. Uh, an order in which you have to do them to get the sails working and you got to climb up, you know, 80 feet and climb out onto the yards and untie things and tie them back up and that sort of thing. Um, and doing that definitely, I think, uh, although it's not for a specific project at the moment, it'll definitely color how I do uh, future stuff because, you know, now I know, oh, you've got to step over this thing anytime you're going up the fuddock. So therefore... I'm going to draw the stasel like right there because I would always get my foot snagged on it. Um, and so stuff like that. And I, I, anytime I'm able to, um, that, that's a little more kind of specific to like a, a period or something. But anytime I'm able to, if I can 
kind of experience something not dissimilar from the sort of things my characters might experience, either it being a locale or, you know, walking around in a place or doing a particular job. Like it, it makes a big difference as to how I draw it and how I utilize it in a story. Um, so when I was younger, I would, I would take not, not for the purposes of research, but it, it ended up working out well. You know, my dad would always give me a lot of grief if I wasn't working. Um, so I always kept, you know, from the time I was like 15, I always had like, you know, two or three part-time jobs, uh, you know, doing different stuff like working on a farm or working at a car wash or, you know, uh, working in a factory or whatever it might be. Um, and so I, I feel like all those things kind of contribute to giving verisimilitude to the project. And I realized that I, I recently, I, you know, I haven't been doing new stuff since I was cartooning. Like I wasn't adding to that, uh, to that mental catalog. Um, so I kind of started setting out to, I guess, uh, have more, have more life experiences from which I could draw. Um, cause I'm not creative enough to, to uh, just make up everything wholesale and still have it, you know, give it verisimilitude. So that that was the reason for doing that. I think it's crucial as a writer to 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 experience uh, as much of the stuff you're talking about as possible because just spiritually, like crawling out on on you know, for, forgive me my ignorance, but crawling out on the mast and like untying <laughs> things, uh, you know, probably created a certain kind of emotion. That you oh, can absolutely. that you could add to a character, you know, some sort of fear. Yeah, and those or are the things like that. that that make I think a huge difference with sure. it. Is, is less so the detail and more so the the visceral reaction that you're having to an event. So, like I I uh, a couple of books ago, I had a sequence in which um, uh, somebody's like tied up to this pole, and I was like, I don't know how they're going to get out. I guess they'll like shimmy up the top. And it wasn't to do this, but I was like, I'm having real trouble, like, drawing somebody with their hands behind this pole. And so I had my wife take some photo reference, and I just, like, had a, I had a pole in my backyard, like, just this, this half a telephone pole that I'd planted for some reason. Um, and, uh, and so she took that picture, and I was like, well, how would I get out of that? And so in me trying to get out of it, that's how I determined how the character would get out of it. And it was much different, and it's hopefully a little bit funnier because it's not very glamorous. And he, like, gets it out, and it falls on him, and... He's saying "ouch" for like three pages as a result, and I was—I I felt like that kind of. And you could put your mind in a place of like, "Wow, what if I was like starving for days?" And like, yeah, you know, there's a lot. There's a lot to consider there. It adds a lot of resonance. That's and it cool. doesn't have to be for that specific thing. I mean, sure. it can carry over to to just about any application that would be a similar type of thing. You know, yeah. the stuff that I'm doing on the ship might, you know, if I had to do something with construction workers in the thirties working on skyscrapers, you know, it's that yeah. similar thing. You know, the first time, first couple of times you do it, it's terrifying. And after that, it's a job. Yeah. Um, and I, and that probably is a, applicable to a lot of situations and you can take those, those experiences and kind of translate them. A lot of novelists do that too. So, so it's like, we're stepping up. And <laughs> Matt, as being that, like you're not really writing and, and you've been brought into this, how much have you been able to really immerse yourself into the storytelling aspect? Nothing of like that. <laughs> um, I mean, that sounds amazing. Yeah, I, 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 I do it completely the opposite. I'll, I'll look at all the references and uh, the books and stuff I can find, and then depending on the script or the page, I just kind of, it's in my own head. Do you know what I mean? I, I sit there for a long time in my own head. You know, how would this work? Or he... Uh, the, the boats that they had that they went on the river on, they're like maybe the size of three rowboats. They're not big, but Chris writes like they're on a pirate ship. So the staging of that, I've got to make sense of what he's writing. So, and it's all in my own head. How would this work? But they use the oars as levers and stuff like that. I don't know if it's accurate. 
it the stuff hopefully looks right, but I mean it's it's I stage it out all on my own head. Yeah. So I mean you've had some complicated aspects. I mean the, a lot of the book is taking place on that ship. And I right, mean, I, yeah. In and out of he he's he's telling me he's gonna destroy that you know, sure. boat soon. Spoilers. <laughs> and I can't wait. I, yeah, because I mean, I, I get there's a lot more freedom drawing trees and stuff like that. You kind of make it up as you go. Both is very specific, and I mean, if you, if you look at the book from issue one to fifteen, it it gets exponentially bigger. Yeah. If you pay attention, because it's just the way he stages it, and there's thirty people on that boat, and if it was a real size, you would not be able to see anything because everybody would always be in the way. So yeah. Does that bother you when you when you're doing it, or is it just? Uh, I, well, I mean, I've, I've obviously not. I just let the boat get bigger. I mean, I I've, I fought it because I'm like, Chris, it's not that big, and I, you know, <laughs> well, I, why are you doing this to me? I'm just like, well, screw it. It's just going to get bigger because it, it you can't stage a scene because you you know everything would have to be a close up because you can't see anything because there would just be people everywhere. But I think that's that's one of the things that comics sort of excels at is that because you know we're we're drawing things, we can we can stretch. Uh, we can restate. We can we can adjust our environments to suit the narrative needs, and things can stretch or shrink as right. uh, as the story dictates. And I, I think if you handle it well, you know it's not going to be. It's all you know. It's all stylized. It's all rendered in line. It, like, it just took me a while to get there I mean, yeah. because when you start, you know, you want to be authentic, and but then you just there there hits a point when deadlines are on you, and you just throw your hands up in the air. I'm just yeah. going to make this easy for myself, and hopefully nobody will notice. So all that said, on the flip side, though, I like a cartoonist like Seth who constructs his cities you know like out of you know cardboard and stuff like that and then he just like it all has like a tangible like there is a geography that he adheres to that i sort of i sort of skew more towards the ocd so Mm -hmm. so like that is like kind of important to me chris you build a model ship those like yeah the yeah the 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 actual models and stuff he had he had an exhibit in toronto i wasn't able to go to it and i really wanted to yeah it tours it tours so it might come it might come to a city near you (laughs) yeah you have your little your little three-foot model ship that you built that you lay your characters in yeah i do i do i i'm trying to i i've started skewing away from it like i was because part of that was part part of like building the like the reference models and stuff is just that i wanted to build models so like i would make a like scratch build like a tramp steamer or something um now and i really discourage other people from doing that because that was sort of my outside of comics hobby which i do think is helpful to to probably have um but really if you're doing like staging models like the smart thing to do is sort of go the david peterson route which is you know you're just you're making it out of paper you're putting on like a perspective grid so that you can see how it's going to play out if you've got like a tunnel or something um and and just use it primarily for staging and i was like i you know i had a book of you know, like a like a Tintin Museum book when I was younger, and and there was you know there's pictures of the rocket ship and things like that. It's like oh, I want some of that stuff. So, um, so it's not it's not smart cartooning to put your time into that kind of thing, probably. But I still like it. It's it's fun. Um, do you guys does the audience have questions? I mean, when we can keep talking. Oh, I'll come up here. There we go. Start up here. <laughs> um, a lot of publishers focus on the, the the capes. So, do you find that there's a publisher too that is uh, more friendly to historical fiction and whatnot than others? I think a lot of publishers are are friendly to it now, especially as the book market um, develops. With 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 floppies, it's always been kind of tricky. Um, and I think you all have done a great job 
with with finding stuff that will appeal to the direct market, but you can still do. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, a lot of the independents are just killing it. I mean, there's so yeah. much good stuff out there. I mean, DC and, and Marvel, and it's not a knock against them. That's they're tied to the capes. Yeah, I mean, that's that's what they do. So, but the the other publishers are not, and they're taking advantage of it. And there's a lot of super great books out that are has nothing to do with capes. And then I think on the on the uh, the the book side of things, as opposed to just the periodical side, you know, there's been, and that's one of the reasons why I got into doing comics is that around you know 2005 or somewhere thereabouts, you know, the the graphic novel section of all the bookstores kind of blew up. Um, you know, everybody who had been doing these long form serialized things, you know, Chris Ware or Seth or um, you know, uh, 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 why like uh, Charles Burns or any of these guys. Um, you know, Jessica Abel, they're putting together all of these, uh, you know, all their stuff is now being collected and published in these big, you know, handsome volumes and everybody's raving about them and all the, and so the sales are good and all the graphic novel sections are expanding and you see, you know, all these books that are different genres. You see romances and Westerns and mysteries. And, uh, for me, I'm a, I'm a big genre buff. Like I don't necessarily read them in prose, but I, I like them as movies. And so I, I get excited when comics kind of do that because like what you were saying with with like japanese comics like there's there's something for every demographic and there's something for every subject demographic um and we were were, you know i feel like that's when we started to see that kind of poke its head up um and that really excited me because i wasn't ever my my style doesn't suit itself well towards you know traditional superhero comics and but i always really wanted to do like historical fiction and adventure stuff um, and seeing some of these titles, and Oni uh, was was who I did do the the Krogan series with, and they that's all they were doing for a while. They were doing romance comics, they were doing um, noir, they were doing westerns, they were doing like these '30s crime things, and I was like, that's who I want to that's who I want to work with because that's the type of that's the kind of audience that I want to be reaching is just the casual comics fan who likes, you know, whatever pirates. Yeah. Ed, you had mentioned that your target audience is more hip-hop fans than comic fans, or maybe... Just cool people. Cool people read my comics, and and, and there are comic people who who fall into that category, and and, uh, there are are civilians who fall into that category. What kind of response do you see you guys are getting from fans of the genre that you're targeting in your books? Like, are you getting, like, ripped to shreds, Chris, on, like, when you do a book about pirates or a book about... You know, I was expecting there to be more of that. Like, and I, I was kind of pushing, pushing Oni to market to that. I was like, there, are t- you know, every every coastal bookstore, you know, up and down, you know, either either coast has like nautical books, you know, like or not not bookstore, but like you know, kitsch souvenir shop where you go and buy like the wooden sailors and stuff and the ship's wheels and the conch shells. Like, they all have a kids book section. Like, oh, why aren't you reaching out to them? And they're like, Chris, it's like like 200 stores it's not worth the the effort to do it and so um so i don't really see much by way of that sort of thing every once in a while i'll get an email from somebody who's like i write books about the french foreign legion and i liked your french foreign legion book and i was like the one guy who right that's there we go um but generally speaking it's it's comics people or casual readers or a lot of times like i'll get um my my kind of bread and butter uh sales wise is adults who are trying to find stuff for their like, you know, kids or teenagers to read that they think will they'll like, um, and so I, I they read them and they're like, this is suitable for kids because I try to write them at an adult level, um, but make them suitable for kids. So you know, I think of like Treasure Island and stuff like that from when I was a kid. You know, they're they're 
they they can carry to either thing. And it's dumb to try and write something all ages just from a sales standpoint because really you do want to have a target market. But um, but that that so 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 I have no sales strategy for the Krogan Adventures at all. But it but that that tends to work pretty well. But the genre people not not nearly as much as I figured it would be. Yeah, the genre people are well, the scholars and you know teachers and stuff like that that, that write. They're my favorite people to hear from, um, and they make me paranoid too. I mean, because you know, they'll, I know the stuff I research, and I know the stuff that looks right, and it's so that I also know what's completely wrong. And I'm waiting for to call me out on it. They haven't yet, but I mean, just hearing from them, you know, we've I'm a Lewis and Clark scholar or whatever, and it's I mean, nobody's tearing me up yet. So would you, would you butchered a great American. No, story? no, they're all they're all on, well, people I've heard from are on board anyway. So yeah, I put uh, I put my comics online every every tuesday two pages every tuesday there's like a new episode and it's on a website called called boingboing.net which is which is pretty popular they have like five million uh unique readers per month uh to the site at large and that is kind of like an effort for me to get to kind of put like one last attempt at uh some like crowdsourced editorial out there because uh, we all know that anonymous people on the internet are very happy to like let you know if you did something wrong. Um, it's never come up yet, uh, like for my strip yet, and and it is popular within the hip hop community. So like, uh, the the best kind of legitimacy I can get for the comic is when uh, one of the subjects from the comic, uh, you know, shares it on their Twitter or Facebook or you know posts an Instagram photo where they're holding my comics. Uh, so like two weeks ago, Ice Cube. Like re- retweeted and shared a strip I made about him, and what that creates is like an instant legitimacy for the work because you know he put it out there on like you know Throwback Thursday and said like this is when I met Dr. Dre and and put out so he he put it he like took ownership of it and I thought that was incredibly cool and and it became like the most popular strip of the entire series like by a very very wide margin because he shared it with 9 million people. And, and whenever I see that as well, it's like, all right, ka-ching. Like, like if I take a look at Amazon, like the numbers are like... Uh, so it's like they do the work for me. Well, one of the things about like that is in your, your Boing Boing strips that you put up, the, at the bottom you tend to include reference videos that go along with the story that you just posted. Right. And I love those because I always read the page and then I'll watch whatever video. I watch the entire Ice Cube behind the music. Because yeah. you had it at the bottom of that page, I was like, I should be working right now, and I'm watching this one hour thing on Ice Cube. That's the that's the other uh, benefit of the online thing is is that you can you can add some mixed media to that. You know, like some some readers are like, there should be a CD soundtrack, and I was like, yeah, and you know what? Maybe I should like package a wrapper and send it to you too. Like like they just don't understand the the business mechanics of like including a soundtrack and like rights issues and a million you know five six gatekeeper yeah. type companies it's like are you, can, you kidding you can me put up a like uh, a playlist that sure. they should you know compile themselves i mean it's, yeah it's, it's yeah it's like geez i spent a year making a comic now i gotta like make the records for you too jeez <laughs> you got people all over yeah. oh just yeah. i was just pointing oh sorry yeah yeah see, yeah. see if i remember uh sorry. so i uh I, I read and i love manifest destiny thank you and i did think about how the boat seems just so large <laughs> but I loved it. So, like, it Thanks. works. Yeah. It works great. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but my question with that is, is how much do you and, and the author, writer, go back and forth? You, you said you 
you discussed a little bit about the frog. We we talk work in person. Is it no? He's. I mean, we don't talk a whole lot, but we get along great. Do you know what I mean? So, like the first couple issues, I'm just like, I'm gonna kick the edges here and see if he yells at me, and he doesn't. So, I mean, I, I feel very comfortable that I have a lot of freedom to do to do what I want. And like he'll stage. He's he writes for TV, and you can tell when he thinks he's got one panel, and you in his head you know he's got his camera moving everywhere, but it's just one panel. So, I mean, I'll restructure a whole page on him and i haven't heard anything back so yeah he's he's researches stuff a lot and like i said a lot of the ideas uh come from him as far as monsters and you know the boat and and what's going on there um so i I trust him and he trusts me so and we talk and it's like once every couple months and we're good friends and then that's it he goes writes tv shows and i draw so you must see like a panel as a shot, and there, where there's a lot of right. You like shot, like one, yeah. The the, the first the there's a panel in like issue two where they're hauling this huge monster onto a boat, and the way he wrote it was like you can tell he went from the front of the ship to the back of the ship in one panel, and I'm like, you know, so. Hey, uh, I have a question about WYSIWYG. Um, so. Recently, I was uh, reading the uh, MTV story of the music video uh, history. Um, and, you know, there are plenty of books like Where Wizards Stay Up Late where they talk about the technical, uh, you know, advances that led to the Internet. Right. But I haven't been able to find one that looks more at the cultural impact. Uh, does WYSIWYG cover that? Do you have any plans to maybe do something like that if it doesn't? I, I do have plans to do some things within like a like a – High tech sphere in the future. I can't point you to to any like kind of concise Reader's Digest version of the the cultural or political part of that because it really is it's it's all encompassing and you almost have to abstractly like put together those i the you, you know your feelings about that like like by just like immersing yourself in 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 the culture um, at large. To be honest. You've uh, you've teased about having a, a possible sequel to WYSIWYG. Well, certainly something like just like like I come from that space, and and you know the idea of authenticity, and and you know working as working on a boat and and doing comics, you know like nautical comics, like like I come from the computer hacking world, and I come from uh, I was born into hip hop, and like I could tell you anything you need to know about the history of skateboarding. Like, like I just come from, I have all of these outside influences that I just, like, you know, I feel that I know better uh, than any other cartoonist. So it's like, in that spirit, I should be the guy who makes that comic, you know? And that, and that kind of thing, I think, is, is really important to keep in mind, especially if you're, if you're a person who's thinking about doing comics. Um, you can't undervalue your passions. Like, those... Those are what set you apart from other people. They're what, you know, and the thing is there are going to be people who share those and there are going to be people who, who when you embrace those and when you bring those to the surface and when you structure your work around them, um, one, it keeps you emotionally fulfilled and happy and, you know, always excited to, to keep working on whatever project you're working on. Um, and two, you know, it's going to put you in touch with like-minded people who, who also share that. You know, it's, it's sort of similar, you know, you're, you're getting paid to basically do you know fanzine stuff um it's which is nice it's the truth like like we you know we we've used the word research up here 
several times, <laughs> but it's but it's really not. I was like, playing on a pirate ship. Like like yeah, two it's and a half it's weeks. um yeah. yeah, it's totally just indulging and and have and having fun. But you know, personally, I have a certain certain uh, kind of complex of not wanting to to uh, appear as a slacker to my friends and family. So if I make a comic uh, about the stuff that I'm kind of indulging in. Like you can never call me out on that, you know. Like in so. those paychecks and yeah, you see you this watch, man. God, I love the best part about being a cartoonist is if you're if you're working on projects that you're passionate about, is that the stuff that you would buy if you were an investment banker is now tax deductible, because yeah. um, it's research, and I mean it legitimately is. It it is research. It's inspiration. It's it's helping to frame the the context of your work. Um, and come write it off on your taxes. Yeah. So you were talking about um, the difference in expe- in people's expectations of pirate wear and like the Peter Pan stripy shirts versus like the gym from uh, Treasure Island, like loose fitting canvas, whatever they shopped at at R Macy's or whatever. And uh, I was just wondering how much do you try to balance reader expectations to reality? Like what, like if people look at it and say they didn't wear stripy shirts like that, but if they actually did, what I try to do, especially in situations where people um, have, I'm trying to think of a recent example, um, and none spring to mind. But um, but I, I think that there there are situations where people will be misinformed as to the historical validity of something. Like they'll they'll so so let's. Let's say, for example, uh, oh gosh, I'll just make something up. So let's say, like, uh, cowboys wearing chaps, like cowboys wore chaps, but whatever. Let let's say, like, there's this this you know internet you know some on BuzzFeed or something. There was like ten things you thought about cowboys that aren't true, and like one of them was like cowboys never wear chaps. Um, so you know that cowboys wear chaps. Like in your research, you find that up, and so you're like, okay, so. But there's this this conception that that's not the case, you know, and this this springs up in a lot in a lot of periods like we'll have you'll have so much of something in older projects that you start to think well that's sort of a silly like homogenized Hollywood version of it and so therefore it can be discounted because it's not realistic Um, so what I do in those situations is I kind of try to lampshade it and bring it to attention and you know in a situation like that I might have somebody from and this is a little heavy handed but I might have somebody you know from out east like show up and he's like you know he's going to a cattle drive and he's ready to go and he's he's just wearing like regular clothes and they're like where where are your chaps and he's like i heard real cowboys don't wear chaps and they're like yeah and you're an a-hole for think of that we need it for the brush or something and so you kind of so so you you try and showcase you 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 recognize the fact that the reader has a a disconnect with this particular thing and you acknowledge it and you address you you sort of indirectly direct directly address the reader um and that thing and then you you use that as an opportunity to to put that in anyway um I, I wish I had a, a better, more useful example. But does that does does that make sense? Um, so that that's one of the ways that I do it. Is if I feel like there's going to be a a uh, an impre- that 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 it's going to put a pause in the narrative. Because a lot of times I'll watch something and I'll be like, that didn't happen, and I'll I'll get real <laughs> huffy, and then I'll look it up and I'm like, oh, 
It did, and I was wrong. Like, uh, and that that happens a lot. Like, it happened with with Rebels. I was reading that Rebels comic, and I was like, I'm pretty sure that there wasn't this this thing happening, and it did happen. And the way it's framed, and the way it's and and he, he, they didn't get anything wrong. Have you all read Rebels yet? Do you know what I'm talking about? The I I I think it's called Rebels, the yeah. the Image Comics uh, mm-hmm. American Revolution one. Um, yeah, and so there's a. But but there's a sequence in which uh, British open fire on this this courthouse, and, and technically there's not anything that didn't happen. It's the the way that the narrative is presented; it makes it far more like grandiose and and uh, and dramatic than I think. Yeah, there there are ways you could have presented it differently, but there's not anything factually inaccurate. Um, but the and the way that he's presenting it is to frame a particular narrative, and I I, I don't fault him for that. But but my initial take was that didn't happen. I would have heard about that, and I and I look it up, and I was like, oh, it did happen. But the you know it's presented in a certain way to give it a very specific light. That you know once you sort of strip that away, it becomes a lot more gray and nuanced, and not so much a good guys versus bad guys thing. Um, but that's the way that that particular narrative needed to frame it for the story to work. And so I I think like for me, what would have helped is if well basically I want it to be the the way that I would write it so that so that that's where it's not it, it doesn't work but 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 I think that's my goal in those instances is to present the reader with enough context that it's not going to give them pause and make them want to go to wikipedia so like page composition wise do you ever go I can't draw that many guys with striped shirts on a boat that's just going to look ridiculous do you ever have to like draw? Be like, okay, I have to mix this up a little. Or like Ed, when you're doing some of the you know outlandish outfits that some guys wear. I mean, do you ever have to go? I need to tone this down a little. Or do you just you stick with it? Like I, I didn't start making this comic to 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 not draw that stuff. <laughs> you know, like I like I love I love the fashion of of old hip hop, and I love the the environment and 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 the setting and all that stuff so so like i it's just uh, i indulge and it gives me an excuse to check out uh, martha cooper's photography from 1983 you know give it another <laughs> once over and steal some cool outfits or watch beach street and take a look at a cool background character and steal a swiping outfit or two and there's a there there i think there's a tendency amongst a lot of people um and you see this in tv shows a lot the three the new three musketeers show I think is especially guilty of this, where you're trying to make something look cool because you think the period outfits are silly or stupid and people won't respond to them. But the thing is, uh, I I feel like if you really own it and just bring that silliness to the very forefront, like it can be super great. I think like Daniel Day Lewis in Gangs of New York is a great example. Like he is dressed so stupid by modern standard by like trying to make something cool. But it's just, but they they push that to the nines, and as a result, like you know, the striped pants that come up to like yeah. mid nipple, and the hat and the hat and all the things, like it just makes them look like a giant walking cartoon spider, and you're just like, yeah. And I, I think that you can, I think that you can do that sort of thing and like really bring those the elements of the eras that you're trying to do to the absolute surface. You know, David O. Russell does that really well in his like '70s stuff, um, and 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 really kind of put that as kind of like a framing centerpiece of that character. And I think that that actually has a lot more resonance than trying to tone things down and making them more accessible to the audience. Because, you know, part, basically history is Star Wars. You know, I mean, like, you're, we're, we're, we're looking at... There, there's, they, you know, you can draw human corollaries to, like, the modern day, and you're saying, oh, okay, I see how time doesn't change. But there's also this alienism to the past that we can really, like... Uh, that we can really, like, put front and center... 
And I think I think that people, generally speaking, respond positively to that because it, it does kind of it, it can be exciting to see this thing that we're not familiar with. Hi, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about the difference between uh, working for publishers in the direct sales versus publishers who are doing trades and graphic novels. And do you think for your genre, um, one is better than the other? Mm. Like, uh, for, for me, it tends to... I mean, it tends to depend on the shop. Like, I, I think there are some shops that really push a variety of things. When it comes to, to, to comic standard stuff, direct market stuff, I think there are a lot of shops that push a real variety of stuff, but that, that stuff never sells as well as Batman. And so there are a lot of shops that, that just kind of, you know, that are either enthusiastic for, that particular, for those particular Marvel DC franchises or they're enthusiastic for the 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 way that that kind of stuff oftentimes sells itself and so they may not highlight the other things there's other people who are enthusiastic for the medium and really wanting to branch out and diversify their audience and i think those are the stores that bring it up so it really changes store to store uh, uh so far as the the genre stuff goes um for for bookstore sales like basically more and more comics publishers are ha you know are are figuring out the mechanics of you know widespread book distribution you know they're working through ingrams or baker and taylor or whoever it might be to get good placement in barnes and noble and you know airports or whatever else um and uh and i think that that you're you're probably going to see less of a divide between the two as as things progress but you know the 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 big new york publishers are are always going to have a leg up on the bookstore market just because you know they're they're printing fewer books they have a bigger budget you know they can buy in caps they can buy space they can they can send galleys out to all the reviewers and to the the buyers and things like that um so really but but honestly it really it it changes book to book i can i i for a fact, know that that uh, sort of my my bread and butter is is the liter the literary market, you know, regular bookstores, record stores, and uh, it does okay in comic shops. But what we decided to do uh, starting in August is to break the bigger volumes down up into uh, each each volume can yield like four issues worth of material. Uh, so we're starting to to do a monthly comic for Hip Hop Family Tree. Um, because there's about 14 issues worth of material kind of in the can already, and it's an effort to just, uh, you know, extend a hand to uh, the comic shop crowd. Um, the, for the past two years, I did the free comic book day comic for Fantagraphics, my publisher, and uh, the copies ordered were sort of through the roof. So it was a good kind of kind of primer to to just see what the what the response would be uh, for for the comic shop crowd to just like as an introduction. Uh, so we're gonna, you know, check back with me at Heroes 2016, and I'll, I'll give you I'll give you some <laughs> empirical data. Uh, yeah, this is for uh, for Chris. I know you just recently went back and re uh, added color to the originally black and white um, Krogan's Vengeance, mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> and I'm wondering it with with that fresh in your mind. Um, in regards to your time at sea, is there anything that you realized in Krogan's that you really 
didn't like anymore? Is there anything that you there's? Like? I, I I mean, there's a there's a ton of things that I would have done differently. I would have done. I mean, it would be a a hundred and eighty different book. Like the the story would have been different. That doesn't mean that I'm not still happy with the first book. Like it's just I'm a I'm a different person now. My my priorities, narratively, personally, socially, etc. You know, they they change as I grow older, and so it would it would just be a different book as a result of that. Um, but I also there wasn't anything reading through that was especially cringeworthy. Um, so that was good. I tried to not change just about in the reissue. I changed. I think I redrew like two panels, and they were just for. Um, for error fixes like one guy there's a one-armed guy and i drew the wrong arm on him things like that um and so in the in so so the ship is you know yeah i drew it differently for black and white than i would have drawn for color i put a lot fewer lines and stasels and things like that in there because when you're doing black and white you're you're suggesting with every line you're suggesting volume so you're suggesting that the ship is has mass in the middle where it's just a collection of lines stretching from one mass to the other. And so as far as I could do within the, the bounds of, I guess, good taste, if that would be the thing, um, is to eliminate as much of those, uh, as many of those lines as possible in order to give the ship a, so I have very few that stretched from like one mass to another. Um, working for color, I wouldn't have worried about that because I can put the sky in the background and it immediately becomes clear, uh, you know what's the ship what's not the ship um when i was working in black and white like that wasn't an option so there are drawing things that are different but i didn't really um but no basically with with each new project you know i i i feel like i can usually stand by the old ones and there there are definitely things that i like i said i would change and i would do differently but that doesn't mean i have to do those on that project it just means i'll take those principles and apply them to future work Time for one more question, if anybody's got one. Or I can close it up, and we can all go about our day. Um, thank you guys for being on the panel and everything. And uh, go ahead, if you guys want to give them a round of applause, and thank you for being up here. Uh, Chris Schweitzer, Ed Piscor, Matthew Roberts, they're all down. They've got their tables down there. If you have any more questions, uh, they'd be happy to talk to you, I'm sure. Thank you, guys.